0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Dug, here on RN. First this hour, I'm delighted to welcome back to the program retired Major General Mick Ryan for an end-of-year account of what he believes lies ahead in the Ukraine war. I mean, it's hard to fully believe that this time last year, just before Christmas, most observers did not think that Vladimir Putin would ultimately invade neighbouring Ukraine, despite all the posturing. But he did. On February the 24th, thousands have died, his own troops especially, Ukrainians as well, and you've heard about the airstrikes at Ukraine's energy infrastructure, leaving Kharkiv, for instance, completely without power. Putin has well and truly weaponised winter, bringing the misery of war fully into the civilian realm. Well, Mick Ryan, who just retired earlier this year after a long career in the Australian Army, found himself on the front line of commentary, could we say. I'm so pleased you could join us again. Hello there.
1: Hi, Geraldine. It's good to be with you again.
0: Uh, uh, Mick, in your most recent writing, you say two key things, I think, that the Ukrainians will need to constantly adapt their methods to outsmart the Russians and that the Russians' newish commander, General Sergei Souravikin, is likely to be a much tougher opponent than his predecessors. Now, maybe you could take us through both observations. What sort of adaptation will be required?
1: Well, adaptation is a really important uh, uh, virtue in a military organisation, you know, Uh, and because the enemy, the Russians, are constantly evolving how they see this war and the kind of weapons they use and where they're fighting, the Ukrainians need to anticipate that they need to be able to respond quickly so, you know, we're seeing the Russians adapt in the kind of strategic attacks. They're uh, having more massed missile attacks against civilian infrastructure. So the Ukrainians have had to adapt their integrated air and missile defence network to defend more against the smaller Iranian drones and other Russian missiles. That's a major adaptation for them. Uh, but, the, you know, the Russians are uh, have constantly throughout this war changed where their focus. So the initial parts were northern Ukraine, then in the east, then in the south. Now it's back around the east. So the Ukrainians have had to adapt their posture, uh, where they have their soldiers, and the kind of weapons they use against the Russians throughout. And they'll need to continue doing that to stay ahead of them.
0: Um, and tell us more about General Suravikin.
1: Well, he's a different person, I think, to the previous commanders. Firstly, I think he clearly has the ear of Putin. Uh, it appears that uh, General Grasimov, the, the chief of the Russian military, has kind of been taken out of the loop for Ukraine, uh, as has the defence minister Shuigu. This is very much a Putin and uh, Sorovkin uh, show now, which uh, will allow Putin and Sorovkin to better align both the political and military aspects of this war. They haven't done that well so far, and that is a really important uh, consideration. But Sorovkin, I think, too, uh, understands that he needs to consolidate Russia's forces. He can't be on the offensive everywhere all the time, that he needs to better coordinate uh, the air force and ground forces, which has also been a Russian point of weakness throughout this war. But also he's more willing to use the more brutal methods that the Russians used in Syria against civilians to force both the Ukrainians and the Europeans to think about uh, negotiations and ceasefires.
0: Um, where does he come from? Was, was he sort of spotted by people uh, in the hierarchy?
1: Well, he's, he's a, a Russian army guy uh, through and through. Uh, he actually played a role in the uh coup uh around Boris Yeltsin's days Truly. he he uh, that's right he uh was uh against the protesters i think he actually ended up uh, being punished over his role in that he's also uh been sentenced to jail time for allegations around arms trafficking so this is a this is a person who has a a, a dubious ethical uh core uh, he also fought in Syria; was was fairly rough and brutal there. And he was commanding Russian forces in the south uh, when he was appointed as the overall unified commander. So he has a broad background. Uh, he certainly has a. Uh, so he a saw sterling. how badly
0: they were doing, in other words, firsthand.
1: Yeah, he he, he had good experience in this war, but he's also got experience in other places uh, as a fairly brutal and and hardcore commander.
0: Um. Uh, 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 was it, by the way, was he involved in Grozny at all? The the Chechen war,
1: which the... oh, I think he also served there as well. Yeah, yeah, no, okay. he's uh, he's got a very very broad background. Uh,
0: you say the Ukrainian military, despite all this, still has the advantage, though, and I think that's generally been the story emerging. Why do you make that judgment?
1: Well, there's a couple of reasons why. Firstly, um, you know, they've been very effective in their strategic influence campaign, particularly in Europe and the United States in in getting uh, military assistance, which continues to flow, uh, but also, you know, support for sanctions, uh, diplomatic support and importantly now economic support. Um, So they're they're getting that. But on the battlefield, uh, they have momentum. You know, they've seized the initiative. They've beaten the Russians up in northern Luhansk and in the south. And momentum is very important in war. You know, once you are starting to win, it's good for morale. But there's something about momentum that uh, military organisations, if they're clever, are able to sustain. And they'll want to do that over the winter. Uh, Even though you also say they
0: are running short on munitions.
1: Yeah, and that's true for both sides. I mean, the story of 2023 and 2024 will be about mobilisation. It will be about mobilising industry in Russia, in Ukraine and in the West to step up the production of things like artillery shells, but also uh, the precision munitions which are used a lot in this war. But I think, too, it will be a story of further rolling mobilisations of people in both Ukraine and Russia to sustain this conflict.
0: Uh, Any sense you have that Western will is declining? After all, we did hear this week that the US is now going to send their Patriot missile air defence system and the HIMARS um, um, missile defence system. So that would suggest it's not. But what do you, how do you sense it?
1: I think um, NATO and Europe and a lot of other countries have surprised the Russians in how steadfast they've been in their support for Ukraine. I mean you can find any number of polls that are for or against the war. Um but I you know, I think at this point in time, because Europeans and Americans aren't sending their young people to fight, they're only sending weapons. Support has generally held up and, and most of the polls tell us that story, like it you know, in our own country. Um so I think at least in the medium term, the Ukrainians uh, are assured that NATO and Europe and the Americans are going to stand behind them. But the Russians are playing a long game here. They are betting that Europe and the United States will get tired of this war, get distracted. And uh, that's that's part of the Russians' plan for victory.
0: Well, I have also read that part of their thinking with this bombardment of civilian targets I'm going to come to in a moment is to uh, force Ukrainians out because it's just so ghastly there. And there was a recent poll I see showing about 7%, I don't know how you do polls there, but anyway, (laughs) 7% of people said they were prepared to move, which would, and the Russians are trying to prompt a sort of refugee refugee exodus into Europe, which they feel will definitely um, uh, hit, you know, the political climate in Europe. Now, uh, again, from what you've seen, because you've been travelling quite a bit, do you sense that there is a real consolidation uh, behind the Ukrainians? You see it as them fighting instead of the Europeans, if you know what I mean? Or do you think there's a weakening?
1: Well, I think, you know, the Ukrainians see themselves as fighting on behalf of, of Europe and, and uh, you know, the ideas around democracy. Countries like Poland in particular have been amazing in their support for not just the military support and political support for Ukraine but supporting uh, refugees that have come across the border. Um, You know the Russians really are attempting to strangle Ukraine as a nation. And part of that is depopulation, whether it's through forcing them out as refugees, stealing their children and giving them to Russian families, or just torturing and murdering them.
0: Uh, look, I mean, d- d- you just go further about that children issue, please, because I saw that you raised that somewhere, and I haven't heard a lot about that.
1: Um, there's actually quite a bit uh, of evidence that the Russians are taking Ukrainian children from occupied areas and having them adopted by Russian families, um, Uh, I mean, it's just a repulsive idea. Um, And, you know, there's some evidence that, you know, tens of thousands of Ukrainian children have been subjected to this kind of torture.
0: Goodness me. I mean, let's just dwell, in fact, upon this um, targeting of the civilian infrastructure. We're, We're... I wonder whether we're becoming slightly inured to the fact of it just because it's in the headlines so much. But this is truly disgraceful military conduct, isn't it? Might it constitute um, war crimes charges eventually?
1: Well, if a military force targets civilians deliberately, uh, that is certainly open to uh, a war crimes investigation. Uh, If they're targeting uh, infrastructure that has military utility, uh, for example, say it was a power station powering a military factory, that would be different. But these are power stations that are providing power to civilians. Um, there is no mil- military utility in these strikes. These are pure terrorist strikes. Um, and, and frankly, there will be a lot of people uh, around Sorovkin and Putin that should be investigated for war crimes.
0: Mm. Now, look, the question of how war's end keeps cropping up as well. Uh, In your travels, and I know this is something that the students of war history, uh, you know, are are very well versed in it. Has anything surprised you among the key people you've been speaking to about how they do imagine this war can be brought to an end if it's not outright victory?
1: No, uh, the the, the thing about war is, is there's many enduring elements and and this war will end when the loser decides they don't want to fight anymore. Um, you know, I think the trajectory we're on may be more uh, similar to what we saw in the Arab-Israeli wars from 67 through to the mid 1970s. I mean, the Israelis beat the Arab armies in 67, but they fought an attritional war through to 73. There was another war. I think that's the kind of trajectory we might be on here as, as terrible as that sounds. I do not see any short-term prospects for any kind of ceasefire or negotiation or agreement about bringing this war to an end.
0: And you, you haven't seen it, heard anything? As some people have said, said remember, with autocratic regimes that look absolutely insuperable, um, that they can collapse suddenly. Because he is going to have to bring, draw up more reservists to, to fight, mm. um, even if this general is clever quotes, quotes, um, you know, there could be very, it, it may not be go well for Putin inside Russia and things could collapse, could they not?
1: But that that's certainly in the spectrum of uh, potential futures. But remember, there's lots of dictators that have held on the power like Saddam Hussein or Kim Jong-il uh, for decades. So, you know, There's also examples where they're able to do these kind of things for very long periods of time and we should recall Putin has had 20 years to build up his power, build rings of protection around himself and whilst at times things may not look that positive for him, we shouldn't underestimate his powers of resilience and survivability. All right.
0: Well, Mick Ryan, we'll speak to you in the new year. By the sound of you, we are going to be speaking to you for a while, which is really terribly depressing. I mean, one's thoughts go to those Ukrainian people. Thank you very much for joining
1: us. Uh, Thanks, Geraldine. And my thoughts are with the people of Ukraine over this pretty grim Christmas.
0: Mm. Major General General Mick Ryan, um, who's been commentating a lot on the Ukraine war, thank you for your texts as well. Well, up next, what about the state of us as we end this 2022? we've, We've invited two tried and true observers of Australian culture to reflect to their heart's content as deep as they care to go on what's particularly struck them about shifts and predictabilities in our communities this past year and how it sets us up for 2023. 2022 has been a bit of a wild ride, an odd year really, in a range of ways as we climbed out of two especially odd years of a pandemic and tried to find a new normal. What are some of the tensions along with some of the happy insights revealed in this year of our now 26 million strong nation? Well, two brilliant guides are joining me for a pre-Christmas yarn. George Megalogenis is one. He joins us Each year at this time, because his writings and essays, to my mind, offer me some surprises always about the state of us. Welcome, George. How are you, Geraldine? Good, good. And I'm delighted Cathy McGowan could be with us from her home in rural Victoria. She came to prominence as the independent member for Indi in 2013. She was re-elected and uh, then in 2019, she uh, supported another independent, Helen Haynes, to win the seat, which is the first time that had happened She's widely regarded as the generator of the movement that brought so many independent members to Parliament. Hello there, Cathy. Good morning. Good morning, George. Um, Now, George, you've written that you think realignment is the word, your word of the year to describe what you think is underway. Uh, How deep does this go in your view?
2: Certainly, a realignment uh, because yeah, we talking about the election uh, on the 21st of May uh, this year. It was the first time in our federal political history the government was decided in the capital cities, and that uh, opens a whole lot of um, a whole lot of questions about who we are, because politics in Australia hasn't all often represented who we are the parliament has always been a bit whiter uh, a bit more male than the nation at large but when the cities where two-thirds of the population live uh, suddenly pull rank on the rest of the country uh, it sort of made everybody stand up and pay attention because the forces that were unleashed at the ballot box uh, not just the treatment of women which was obviously the issue all through uh, 2021 and sort of came to a boil uh, with the election of all those teal candidates. But there's about two or three things going on in the cities which sort of the rest of the country hasn't been paying attention to. And now they are uh, sort of, everyone's been forced to think about it because we've changed government on 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 these terms. You know, in the past, when you've had sort of shock election results, uh, people always tend to to run to that other Australia, whether it's rural regional Australia, whether it's the outer suburbs, this is an election that was decided in the cities themselves, in the inner city and in the middle ring suburbs. And as I say, forcing us to look with fresh eyes at who we are, but some of those trends that, that uh, were revealed at the ballot box have been hiding in plain sight, I think, for us for a number of years.
0: And you don't think they're fads by the sound of you. You think it's quite deep and ongoing.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a bit of, been a bit of a hobby horse of mine for about 20 years, but when you look at the centre of the economy and you look at the achievers and the most important workers in the economy, uh, they tend to be uh, professional women and the children of immigrants. And those two groups haven't been well represented in our political debate, certainly haven't been well represented in media. And the sense of who we are, which is sort of male with a blue collar, uh, with a bloke in charge, uh, those things I thought were, uh, couldn't hold... Uh, for long, but they actually held probably for a bit longer than they should have, and that's why. Uh, whilst the election itself has sort of shocked people, the underlying forces are not a surprise at all. I'm just, I'll just tick yeah. off. A, yeah, if I could just tick off a couple of things. So, when you look at the teals, for example, uh, the largest uh, group of workers in the economy, when when you measure them by occupation, are professional women, and they overtopped uh, tradesmen, uh, blue collar men, uh, about five years ago. So it's not a surprise to me that eventually the ballot box would, would, would sort of rattle with a, it's not, hey, look at us, it's, we're sick, of being, we're sick mm-hmm. of being ignored, now it's time to pull rank on you. The other thing is, you know, the coalition lost a lot of, the Liberal Party and the Liberal National Party in Brisbane, uh, not in the regions, lost a lot of seats uh, to places where there's a, a high concentration of uh, migrants. And that's the second part of the, that's the second part of the equation. And eventually, eventually, when you look at a country run by women and the children of immigrants, uh, that's not the Australia we grew up with. The Australia we grew up with have these, you know, these sort of, you know, permanent pillars of our identity, white, male, uh, with power sourced in the regions.
0: Yes. Uh, Cathy McGowan, how do you see it sitting in the regions as you do? Oh well,
3: what just an absolute joy to be on your program. So thank you for the opportunity. So I'd like to value add to a couple of things George has said, um, but I about the the change in the demographic because certainly in the regions there's been a huge uh, influx of people from other countries. So we no longer the white um, British. Uh, maybe Irish stock that used to be the case, and I'll pick that up in a minute. But but there's another thing that, George, you haven't commented on that I think at this election, that really we were at a crossroads. There was a general sense that the government we had was taking us in a particular direction, and people knew where we would end up. You only had to look at America and Britain to see where that type of government took us. And I think, you know, the people of Australia generally made a decision that they didn't want that. So we we were at a crossroads and the nation chose um, a different type of government and put integrity, I think, at the centre of that. So, But it wasn't just the cities, George. Like there was something amazing happening in Western Australia, like the Labor government got in on the votes in Western Australia. But the other thing that you haven't commented on that I saw was the large number of community independents in the country, in the regions, that took their very, very safe seats and made them marginal. For example, Groom. Groom is in Toowoomba, um, represents Toowoomba in Queensland. So um, Susie Holt up there made that seat marginal. Uh, again, down in Wannan, which is warnable in um, south-west Victoria, a community independent took on the Minister, Dan Tien, made that seat marginal from a very safe base. And there are other seats as well. So it wasn't... While the cities um, won it in terms of getting their members up, the... The change that's happened in regional Australia um, and particularly in the regional cities is just enormous and it's not only the immigration, it's the in, in the industry that's coming to the regions and it's that sense of community, um, I think, recognising their power and going, well, government's not the answer to us and certainly a national Liberal Party government was not ever the answer for the regions and I think now the communities are going, well, we actually want something better and we're going to use the political and the economic systems to put the regions at the centre and the heart of, particularly the work around climate that we're going to see in the next year.
0: It is interesting, though, how because I... You know, to to work out what that will translate to, whether that will last, that'll become a sort of a really durable sense. And we've got to bring in, I think, pretty early the the awful, awful events in Queensland this week in terms of um, emotions in some parts of Australia, maybe outside capital cities, you know, maybe. And there's a particularly good article by a man called Greg Hallam, who used to be head of the uh, Queensland Local Government Association in the New Daily um, this this week, and I thought it was one of the most sort of perceptive, there were a couple of good articles about the almost distinct creation of underprivileged Communities, uh, the blockies uh, across Queensland. It's not just a West and Downs problem with parts of South East, uh, uh, East Queensland having their own challenges. This is a problem for the whole state. Um, many blockies uh, want to opt out of mainstream society and its rules. A lot of them are anti-vaxxers. They subscribe to conspiracy theories and they identify with right-wing fringe politics to absolutely tragic effect. So I, I wonder what you think, George, you must have been pondering this, whether there are areas uh, that are more easily identified um, who really do need extra, extra a lot of things, Um, engagement being one of them, Uh, that that we we just, you know, that this is out of the plain sight of cities. This is what Greg Hallam says. It's a long way from cities. They don't even see it. So these people who are driving the politics in the cities wouldn't even see this and then it sort of can bite them. How are you viewing it?
2: Yeah, uh, just and, and follow up also from Cathy's point, Cathy, that's, that's all very true. In fact, the interesting thing about the political cycle now is that everybody has, every voter in Australia has, over the course of the last two elections, federal elections and certainly at the state level, been given uh, the tools to turn their community into a marginal electorate to demand attention from the system. But also the de- declaration of this being a marginal electorate is also a declaration of independence—not necessarily independent candidate, but a declaration of independence from that community. Now, when you—sorry, sorry, what, what, you,
0: what do you mean, George, exactly by that?
2: Well, most voters now uh, have, uh, over the over the over the course of the last couple of elections, uh, and you can see it in the collapse in the in the primary vote of the two major parties. So, at the last federal election, we basically got to that situation where a third voted Labor, a third voted Coalition, and a third voted other. So, people are putting themselves in a position now where they can uh, be, you know, be. be your service, your service delivery isn't good. Your infrastructure, your infrastructure problem. Well, I
0: think we've got a problem there. We've, I think we've switched networks, somehow or other. How how you did that still hear You. I don't yeah. know how that happened. Actually, uh, uh, can we hear George? Is George there? Yes. Go on, George.
2: Sorry. Am I still here? <laughs> yes, you are. You are. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> So I'll, 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 I'll do it by, by example of Victorian, the Victorian election. The Victorian election that we've just had, uh, the Labor Party return of a second landslide. But the granular detail of the seat-by-seat uh, seat swings... Is that in a lot of the communities that were safe labor seats have swung quite dramatically against the government, and they tend to be the communities where service delivery has been pretty poor, uh, you know, where the housing estates have been built ahead of the uh, provision of infrastructure, and in the regions, the regions have almost declared uh, a separation from Melbourne,
0: right. In
2: in, t- in terms of their voting behaviour. So when we go back, and I sort of don't want to, I, I, I don't want to over-analyse particular group of people who. Who basically ambushed the, the the those poor police officers in Queensland? But I, don't I think wanna, we do have
0: to. Th- I think we do have no, to. No, think- not
2: the household. I want I want to go away from the household if I could because right. that, that yeah yeah of be course ex- yeah an extreme example sure. But in terms of in terms of that sense of isolation uh, that communities outside the cities have, I think this is almost the, I think this is almost the big challenge in mm. the, for for twenty twenty three. Is now that you've now that you've seen one part of Australia poor rank, which is capital cities, you almost immediately have to ask yourself the question, well, what does that mean about the rest of Australia? Mm. Because uh, whilst, whilst uh, you know, as I say, two-thirds of the Australian population live in the capitals, um, that's where most of the income is generated. It's where most of the taxes are collected. Where uh, the regions we're talking about, which are under-resourced, that's where a lot of the benefits are, 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 are delivered even even though, in terms of services, they're under-resourced. Now, holding that, holding that particular country together is actually harder, paradoxically, uh, when you source your political power in the cities yeah. without negotiation with the region. So that's, that's the thing where I agree with Cathy. I sort of didn't mention it um, because it was, I figured we'd get around to it. But that's, that's the thing that concerns me now. Uh, what concerns me now, especially now the power has 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 transferred... Uh, that the people who f- felt they've been underrepresented for the last twenty years say, "Hooray, we're finally back in charge!" And forget about the rest of the yeah, country. Yeah,
0: okay, but
3: uh, I, I don't think I don't think you can um, just on the Queensland example, um, Geraldine. I think the, the the mega picture of what you're talking about is huge about the dis- disassociated people from the democracy, but they're definitely in the cities. Like during during um, COVID, there was huge marches in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. So that example that we we had last week was certainly happened in the country, but I don't think you can take away from the huge disaffection and particularly during Victorian lockdown that that brought to the surface. But I just want to, I think it's a much stronger thing happening in our country, which is again what I say about the crossroads. Like it was a real choice. Do we go down that um, much more, um, pay attention to the violence that underpins a lot of Australian society. Um, and it's not just in that sort of anti-vaxxer, that, um, the terrorist stuff that we see that we've also seen in America, but it's also the huge amount of, um, physical violence that happens. You know, the deaths, the imprison, imprisonment of our young children. Like there's a, there's a thread right through our culture, I think, of, of of really ruthlessness. And and I picked it up particularly during, when I was a member of parliament with the asylum seekers and what Australian did to uh, the refugees, like how we turned that whole sense of us as a nation, as open, um, as welcoming of people, and we said, no, we're not that anymore. And we've invested billions of dollars into it. Like, I think it's the same thread that goes through the Australian society. Um, and it plays out when you have a government like we had that doesn't actually listen to people. And I think what that was what I mean when I say the crossroads. And we didn't have integrity. The community, some, so many of the communities said that we're a nation of integrity and we're a nation that, you know, a Christian nation that cares. And we want our government to be that. And you haven't been that, and we're caught. And here's the consequence of you not being like that.
0: Yes, but I mean, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because I, I noticed that there's a very um, there's a series in the UK called The Coming Storm, Gabriel Gatehouse. I think it's a BBC series, and it's been very well received because they're looking looking at uh, at issues uh, of that in the UK as well. That it's the fringe against the centre, not left versus right, which I suppose is really what what um, um, George is alluding to, and that question of how you do draw people in? Because at least in the cities, I would argue, Cathy, even if people do come out uh, on the streets, they're in touch with each other. It's this isolation, which is so terrible and can lead to such completely pathological responses. So I
3: think the, the nation, so that's that's right. And we've got a choice as a nation, how do we want to be? Do we want to actually begin to do the work and invest our resources in engaging People and in, from my perspective, community independence and community democracy and knowing that the the nation belongs to you and you can influence it. Do we want to be that sort of nation and we put our energy into it or do we want to be another sort of nation? And I think the critical thing next year is going to be how we approach the voice to parliament because already we've seen, and I don't even want to name the party because I'm so disappointed by their approach, but they came out and said, we're going to vote vote against this and we're going to do everything we can to say no, as opposed to some form of um, representation on behalf of the nation saying (laughs) Ah, well, we've got lots of opinions about how this is going to be reconciled. And let's work, let's work at a community level to actually have the discussion, have the conversations around the table so that we can actually work through this opportunity we've got to either divide the nation on a voice to parliament or grow together and come up through conversation and attention to all those individuals who are disaffected um, to engage and to listen and to invite them into a conversation so that we can can build the nation we want. So I think next year is going to be so important as how our leaders in particular work with community to take that opportunity and not go down that that road that beckons of violence, of nastiness, of dictatorial stuff, of, of hatred, yes. it actually does something de- something C- else.
0: C- certainly going to be a big test. George Megalogenis and Kathy McGowan are my guests. Um, I wonder, George, what you think this will result in terms of, say, uh, what really does occupy the headlines and politicians views like housing policy for instance I noticed there was an interesting piece by Nick Direnfirth who's the executive director of the John Curtin Research Center in other words a labor center talking about um, he had this you know talking about the the dilemmas do facing the center right the center right has nothing to offer young voters in particular in terms of either home ownership or rental stress and insecure tenure if young people have nothing to conserve, such as owning a house, why would they vote Conservative? Um, do you see, you know, this has been rumbling along for years, the housing debate. Given what you're saying, and the and the demographic trends, are we up for a change in the way we think about what really matters?
2: I think, uh, so we, uh, this is a question about the, obviously, the Great Australian Dream, which is now not obtainable uh, before your 40s, I think, for a lot of people. And I did see something on uh, social media the other week, and I'd, I'd love to remember the name, of the handle. Uh, that phrase, you know, if, you, if, you're a, if, if you're not a socialist at 20, you don't have a heart. Um, and if you're not conservative at 40 they i've now flipped it to you don't have a house <laughs> right <laughs> so when we look at when we when we look at uh, i'll just take i'll just walk you back half a step when we look at uh, one of the things that happened in the election and in a seat like Keyong where Josh Frydenberg assumed he would be reelected and would now be opposition leader uh, a big proportion of renters moved into that area you've got a lot of high income uh people who would normally be liberal voters who can't get into the property market and they're either voting green or teal or labor. Now that's a structural problem for the coalition because as, as their older voters uh, leave this earth, and that inevitably happens between elections uh, and, and younger voters come onto the electoral roll in that exchange where the conservatives used to be able to sort of maintain a hold on power was as young people marry, uh, get a Mm. mortgage, have kids, they would then switch, right? Um, that there's a there's a a bit of a demographic gap that's opened there. Uh, it's actually a bit of a cliff, which the, we know that the liberals are now fallen off because they lost all the, all you know, once safe seats all disappeared at once at that last election. But the con- but the consequences of what happened is that suddenly what is now front of mind is a, is housing affordability, uh, also land use, which is going to be a bit, bit tricky in the cities where people. Don't want uh, overdevelopment, but overdevelopment is is a way to, to increase affordability and also increase access to housing for people who, who want to buy or want to rent. So that, that's not going to be the easiest debate for Australians to have. Yeah. Uh, that switch between the interests of the homeowner and the borrower and the renter and the aspiring uh, uh home buyer now you know traditionally we've been able to manage it on behalf of the two thirds uh, that either own their home outright or have a mortgage, partly because we've just been able to release extra extra housing uh, lots in the outer suburbs. When, as except we're just alluding back to what we we're talking about before, about um, people not feeling represented in the outer suburbs, we've sort of reached n- not so much the limits to growth because you could still extend the, the boundaries in the city, like Melbourne or in uh, or in Brisbane or or in around the southeast corner of the Gold Coast. It's not that you can continue to extend the boundary; it's just not practical anymore to keep doing it because a) you blow your politics up, and b) the people who are there. Uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 Ks away sometimes from where they were. Yeah. So these are, these, are, these are tricky things because they, it's not just something you could ask a Prime Minister or a Treasurer to fix because uh, it cuts across not just two tiers of government but all three. It goes from federal to state and to local.
0: Look, I'm going to, in the in the sort of minutes we have remaining, I want to look at what's worked well, because <laughs> I said sort of <laughs> surprises and predictabilities. Because <laughs> in many, you know, time and again, I see quotes from overseas sort of looking, uh, citing us as having managed a range of things well uh, in these last two or three remarkable years. So, Cathy McGowan, what have you reveled in? Can I ask you that way? Yeah.
3: Look, I'm, my enormous pride and patriotism being an Australian, the way that my community and the communities around us managed COVID, and I live on a border community with Aubrey Wodonga and we had the army come in and stop us travelling to my dentist, to the doctor, to whatever it was. So the the heavy hand of the law um, was, was, was huge and the impact was enormous and the community just rose up, worked around it and came out I came out, I'm not going to quite say on top, but as I watched the commu- and community... Um, community do its thing, uh, I just have such pride at the very micro level and then at the, the, the local government level and certainly at the state level. So that's one thing. And then then the next part of all of that is as I got engaged in the, both the state and the federal election, the sense of democracy in Australia, like I just am so proud of our system and how it works. And sure, at the edges, it's not perfect. But the the ability that we have as a nation to change government from one well, we don't like you, we're going to chuck you out and we get a new government in and there's a sense of quite joyousness that people you know most as particularly during the state election I was doing I'm um, standing at the um, polls and people wanted to talk about politics so they'd come up and they'd say you're oh, you know elbo this is in Wodonga, he's um he's not doing too badly is he i mean what do you think oh yeah it's really it's you know and then they would talk like you had, was this morning geraldine about the war in um europe mm. and all the problems of winter over there and then people would work and they say you know he's really trying and i think you know, i think he might do okay and don't you like tanya like these first he's, names he's like, really don't, trying. Like, don't you like That's tanya such an you know it is, and it's this sense of this personal relationship people have with their politicians that they can engage in it, and there's a sense of like we own we we own our system, and I know when we have we have this massacres that happen and just the huge um, family violence and the murders that go on and the stuff we don't like, the community goes well that's not us. Okay. So anyhow, yeah. I I go into the new year with just an enormous sense of pride. And, and, and potential of if we if we can I've, hold the community to, at the centre of politics, we are in a good place.
0: I've got to give George a, a brief reply to that response. Uh,
2: just quickly, uh, we reflect obviously on this year because this year is the year we're pretending to live with COVID, and the, um, the obviously, unfortunately, the death toll from COVID is a multiple of the previous two years combined. But we've come out of it. We've come out of it, and I'm going to do an Anthony Albanese. I don't. I didn't look up the last unemployment number. We've come out of it with virtually full employment. It's around 3.5% at the moment. Uh, The world, the global economy is worrying about recession next year because the Americans are uh, trying to kill inflation and they're prepared to accept the risk of a uh, recession in the US. I look at us going into whatever happens next year in not a bad uh, not a bad. We're in a relatively good position as we were during the GFC, right. as we were at the start of the COVID. I think, I think our um, our, our sort of resilience, our resilience uh, levels are still high. And so, whatever whatever the world throws at us next year, I think you'd be pretty confident okay. uh, that the story will be Australia has done better than the rest of the world.
0: Yes, I think you might be right. Look, George and Cathy, thank you very much indeed. Have a lovely Christmas.
2: Thank you. Mm. Thank
0: you. And could I suggest that you also might like to listen to the wonderful uh, rap of the sound year that Breakfast put to to air, uh, Mark Fennell and um, Madeleine Jenner put that. that. You can go on YouTube and look, it's fabulous. Very good one this year in particular. Well, look, up next, a fascinating and moving memoir of a Palestinian man. Yes, in Israel, negotiations uh, to form a coalition government drag on, whatever their final form. It's likely to be far more conservative than any in recent memory, which makes the idea of statehood for the Palestinian people an ever-receding dream. Reconciling the desire for an independent state with the personal cost of that fight, that's at the heart of my last guest's work today. And the book that captured this is moving personally, but also outlines the plight of a moderate man in the midst of political turmoil. Lawyer and author Raja Shahada has written before exploring life for Palestinians in the occupied territories, but his latest is a memoir about his father, Aziz Shahada, who was also a lawyer and advocate for the Palestinian cause. It's called, We Could Have Been Friends, My Father and I. Welcome, Raja Shahada from Ramallah. Good morning. Thank you. What did you know about your father and your family before you wrote this book? I mean, from your childhood and as a young man, um, what memories did you have of him? Well, I had more memories of my
4: grandmother who, who and mother who, who who were very articulate and spoke a lot about their life in Jaffa and and the miseries of the Mecca. my father was not like that he he always looked forward and and didn't look back and and he was involved so much with politics and with legal cases which were uh, always giving him a hard time because he went against the regime in Jordan and 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 Israel and so on mm. and uh, i i felt a little distant, and uh, didn't want to pursue and his his uh, news and his cases until uh, changed recently. And, and you were
0: forced to, and we'll get to that. In fact, what you say, and it's incredibly moving, I think, is that there was almost a culture of forgetting in your life. You 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 couldn't remember lots about him. You you you. It it was it's was almost as if. You sort of blocked it out, you know. His time away, his time in prison, his cases, so on and so forth. It seems to, that seems to really be it's a small agony, I think, of yours to to now recall that.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. Because he 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 did many heroic things. So he was, for example, taken to this desert prison in the Jaffer, very harsh conditions. And when he came back, I don't remember the the encounter. And he was exiled for about three years. And I don't remember the encounter. And it's as if I blamed him all the time for, for leaving us and for being so involved. And that's what, because I took my mother's side. My mother always felt that it, their life would have been better if he had stayed away from politics. And I think I took her side and, and blocked a lot of my father's mem- memories and, and uh, uh, feeling good about him.
0: Your family was, as you say, forced to leave your home in Jaffa in 1948 when Israel was formed and to live in Ramallah, which was pretty undeveloped, as you say, uh, then, um, all before you were born. How how did that affect your father and your whole family and relationships in the household?
4: Uh, they, they were well off and prosperous in Jaffa and came to Ramallah having lost everything and and becoming uh, destitute really and, and with no money to, to, to live on and so on. And so my father had to work very hard to, to rebuild everything. But the thing is that when I was writing the book, I tried to place myself in my father's shoes and uh, to, to to try and feel how he must have related to the fact that uh, the Palestine he knew was being divided and, and lost. And then I realized that Many of his experiences in that regard are similar to mine because I'm also watching how Palestine and the West Bank is being lost to Israel through these settlements. Mm. And, and so I saw, saw means of getting together that I had never envisaged before.
0: So when your mother handed over this filing cabinet to you, this is the crucial moment, isn't it? When your life changed, really, with your father's papers in it. Well, you didn't go through it straight away. You you again declined to do so. What then inspired you to start to read what he'd written?
4: It was actually uh, somebody had given me the telephone directory of uh, Jaffa Tel Aviv in 1947. I looked at this uh, old document and saw that my father's name and my grandfather's name, who was a judge in Jaffa, were there. And I realized that all that life that they had led in Jaffa had been denied. And and I felt I needed to write about it and and, uh, uh, evoke it. And at the same time, another person gave me a booklet, which he found in a a little bookstore opposite the uh, uh, British Museum in London. Uh, for old books, and it was a a publication that my father had done in 1936. It was called ABC of the Palestinian Case. I I read it and I thought I was so enthralled by by the clarity and the articulation that he had then of the case. And then I thought, why didn't he ever show me this booklet? Mm. And how is it that I never knew about it? And so I started investigating more and more and realized that i had a treasure trove in these uh, documents that he that he had left and he had left them very carefully uh, organized and and filed and and uh, clear and so on and so i started exploring and finding more and more about his life and his work and and i started writing the book
0: because you disagreed in a way as a young man with your father's work, his very legalistic approach, very punctilious approach. Do you think it, now it was a rejection of him personally because of all those years he'd spent away working, or, or was it something else? I think it was partly that and partly because he,
4: he his politics was very unpopular. He had called for a Palestinian state immediately after 67, which was rejected by all sides. And, and he suffered very much for it. And I saw how much he suffered for his politics. And, and anyway, I wanted to uh, take myself away from his uh, uh, image and, and, and his power over me. And so I was per- pursuing really the same track that he had pursued of human rights and, and uh, service for the Palestinian people and so on, and didn't realize that we were on, on the same uh, track and, and it, it, it was amazing that I didn't realize this. And even to the point that he had signed one of his uh, articles that he wrote in, 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 in the 70s, Samid, which means the perseverant one, the one who perseveres. And and I had also uh, uh, described myself in, in my first publication, The Third Way, as Samid. <sighs> and he never pointed this out, and I never knew this. And so we were not only on the same track, but having the same ideas and the same articulation even, and Did, he didn't know it.
0: How amazing. Do you think he knew it? Do you think he was quietly very proud of it?
4: I think, of course, he knew it, and he didn't want to tell me, and perhaps he didn't want to make me feel that I'm not being original and, and so on. So it was an act of kindness on his part, I think, now.
0: Hmm. You had been practising as a lawyer for decades when your father was murdered. What do you remember from that time? What do you now know about how he was murdered?
4: Well, it, it was a very difficult time for me when he was murdered because it destroyed my world in a way and, and destroyed the possibility that we would get closer together as time went on. What date was that,
0: I, by the way, exactly? Uh,
4: eighty-five.
0: 80,
4: 1985, yeah. And I, uh, I was devastated and, and uh, uh, didn't know what to do. But I thought the only thing to do was to help the Israeli police pursue the case the investigation. And I did everything I could for years and years and years. And it, we were getting nowhere. And then I realized only much, much later that the police had closed the file and didn't tell us that they had closed the file. And so even today, after 37 years, we, have, we are pursuing a case against the police for, to, to uh, expose the file and give us access to it. And the police continue to refuse, saying that they have to protect the collaborators and the identity of the and the privacy of the suspects. Well, because and, Israel
0: originally said he'd been murdered by a Palestinian from the PLO, and we'll come to that in a moment. Um, but then you did discover that it was actually, it was a Palestinian man, but he was a collaborator with Israel. Is that right? Exactly,
4: exactly. And And I wrote about all this agony of the investigation in an earlier book called strangers in the house. And uh, many readers have thought that uh, this would be a repeat, but of course there are, uh, that, that is not uh, the case at all because that uh, that book was about the investigation mm. and uh, and about my feelings about the investigation and and this is something else entirely.
0: Well, I think it is. Um, I mean, there's some very poignant moments. I just want to quote from one of parts of your book, I was sure we were moving, always moving towards the ultimate happy family and that one day we would all live in harmony. But then he died and I had to wake up from my fantasy to face the godlessness of my world. There was not enough time for the rebellion and the dream. I was alone. There was no second act and no stage manager. So these were really profound moments of confrontation with self, wasn't it? Weren't there?
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I realized that I had... It's also partly that now that I'm growing older, I realize what it means to be... My my father died in his, when he was 73 years old, and I'm now 71, so it's, I'm close to that age of his. And I realize now how unsympathetic I was to his old age, to, to, to what happens to a man at, at that age. And I uh, didn't uh, show respect and show uh, uh, kindness and so on. And I always thought it would happen in time, but then, of course, it didn't happen because he was murdered.
0: Um, do you have a view, by the way, of why he was murdered? Ultimately, I mean, what was the that was the there was a complaint, wasn't there, between this man who'd been in prison and your father had pursued a case against him? You were always worried about it, and you turned out your intuitions were right.
4: Yes, this man was a a, a squatter on the land belonging to the Anglican Church near Hebron. And my father had taken the case to evict him. And this man wrote a letter from the prison warning my father that if he doesn't lift his hands off this case, he will kill him. And this uh, letter was with the police. And the fact is that uh, it was a great motive, of course. And of all the files that they discussed and investigated that, that we had been suspicious of. This was the only one that they didn't investigate, which made me feel more certain that it was because they were trying to protect this man who was a collaborator.
0: Look, I did say in my intro that really it's the plight of a moderate. I got that strong sense. he was a man who believed in the rule of law and believed in um, trying to appeal to the rule of law, even in these exceptionally complex times. But he, he, he was hemmed in by everybody. Invariably, his projects were blocked by Israel, you're right. Um, when he and other colleagues worked on promoting a separate bar association from that of Jordan, which was paying a stipend to West Bank lawyers, uh, their efforts were blocked by Jordan. When it wasn't Israel or Jordan who did the blocking, it was the PLO. The PLO prevented many of the vital projects that he wanted from succeeding, including those which Israel, after strenuous efforts on the part of the promoters, reluctantly approved. So he was just really in the middle, wasn't he?
4: Absolutely, absolutely. And and one of the amazing things about my father was that he believed so strongly that the only solution is to live together, the Palestinian nation and the Israeli nation. And he never wavered, never, never, ever wavered from this dream and at the end of the book, I have this discussion with him over the fact that Israel might have won and, and we have failed. And he says, no, the victory is when we both win.
0: Do you think there's any chance of that now? Well, I think there will be
4: a chance because Israel, although on the face of it is winning, is also losing because they are now, uh, uh, they have a government of the right, uh, extreme right wing, which is not going to go well with the, for, in the world. and And so and also it's not nice and it's not a happy thing to for israelis to live under uh, fascism and 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 extreme racism and and be uh, looked upon by the world as as racist and this is happening more and more so and so in a way their victory is not a real victory their only victory is when when they give the admit the rights of the palestinians and and we live together so yes i think he was right
0: we'll see Raja Shahada, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure. Raja Shahada. His book is called We Could Have Been Friends, My Father and I. It's distributed by Profile Books here in Australia. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Duke. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now.